Welcome back to Faith by Design and welcome to Crosswalk. Man, we're so excited to have all of you here from wherever you are watching. And since we moved over to the new streaming platform, which I don't know if you've noticed, things look a little bit nicer. We also have these incredibly cool maps to see where you are all watching from. And we've got people watching from Colombia, from Australia, from Finland. We've got somebody in North Dakota, at least one person in North Dakota. So if that's you, thanks for watching. But more than anything, we're just excited that we can continue to worship God together and continue to open the word. We are in our Faith by Design series. I think we're on, it could be week 10 at this point or maybe even week 11. I know I should know that, but it just keeps going on. We've got a few more weeks left in this series to finish out the book of James. And I don't know if you've ever done such a study in the book of James, but for me, it's been illuminating. It's been exciting. It's been hard at times, but always we wanna lean back into those design principles. Design principles like empathy, like iteration, like prototyping, like testing. And of course, we always wanna be able to know that we can go back and rework the faith that God is creating in us and help us get to a point where we are more effective in our faith life practices. So anyway, we just are excited that you're coming along with us. We're gonna jump right into the text today. And then we begin with James chapter five, verse seven. And this is how it goes. It says, dear brothers and sisters. Now, if you notice, things are changing, but let me read this all the way through and then I'll jump back in. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as we wait, as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. Now, you saw that he began a different way. Remember, he was saying some things that were pretty tough last week or in the previous phrases that he was saying, come now, come on, seriously, are you real? Are you for real? And then he begins this time with then, brothers and sisters. So there's a turn, right? Last week it was condemnation and, and this week things change. Many people think that this week is actually tied back to chapter one, verses two through 18, which of course is great preaching and writing, but it is also tied to what came directly before because there was a warning and now there's wisdom. And one thing that we should know is that warnings often come before wisdom. In your life, where do you see warnings? And of course, where do you find wisdom? What are your sources of authority that help guide you, that at once warn you and then give you the wisdom that you need to get through the next piece and the next part. When it feels like everything is changing, when we live in such an uncertain world, it's easy for us to be concerned about warnings but not get to wisdom. And we want to push through the warnings and get right to wisdom. But let me ask you this question. What are some of the warnings in your life that can lead you to wisdom? What is happening in your life right now that you could take as a warning? And that may be uncomfortable. That may be uncomfortable because those warnings are feedback loops that we get. This feedback that we get realizing that maybe we're headed in the wrong direction. In the Old Testament, it would have been words of a prophet or words of a priest. In today's life, who is it and what is it that is authority in your life that sometimes pushes back on you a little bit and gives you some warning because they're really concerned about you getting to wisdom? 
Remember, as we are as we are working through this faith by design and design thinking as we look at our faith, this is a point where as we're prototyping, we should be testing and then going back and checking in to see what adjustments need to be made. Remember, prototyping leads to testing, which leads to adjustment, which leads to relaunching and trying it again. We prototype our actions and behavior. And then we take results as warnings and we begin to adjust, which is wisdom, as they say. Now, in the Bible, warnings are often about internal, not external threats. And this is interesting because in today's world, it feels like we are living through a lot of external threats. Threats to our way of thinking, threats to our way of life, threats to our ideology. And it's very easy for us to focus on the warnings that are coming externally and not really do the heart work internally that we need to be doing to really heed those warnings and begin to change the way that we act and behave, the way that we think about other people and the way we think about even the ideologies that we espouse when we know that the only ideology that trumps all of those is the fact that Jesus loves us, Jesus died for us, he is resurrected, and he's coming again. It is easy for us to become idolaters to our own ideology if we forget the first and foremost premise in which we, who are followers of Christ, live, which is, again, his love, death, and resurrection, all for us. But when we think of warnings, we often think of warnings like the British are coming, or there's a tornado coming, or tsunami. Or we wish, you know, we here in Southern California that we had earthquake warnings, which of course we don't. But in scripture, there are often warnings about the state of your heart, the state of your behavior, and the state of your actions. And sometimes these warnings come in ways by being philosophically annoyed. That's how I like to say it. Not necessarily anxious, but something is just itching at your heart, right? You're philosophically annoyed. Something is not right and it's not easy to fix and it's something that goes along with you and you can't quite get it out of your heart and your soul. Sometimes we act out out of that uncomfortability, but I don't know if you've ever been philosophically annoyed. I'll tell you, I have been because sometimes people make decisions that philosophically don't make any sense. There's this sandwich place I like to go. It's been closed for a while because of COVID, but I like to go there. And when I would go there, the very first time I went there, I got a sandwich, I fell in love with it, it was great. At the end of the meal, I thought I should throw away my, my plate because that's what you do. And so as I go to throw away my plate, which was kind of this hard plastic plate, I tried to put it in the trash can, but the hole in the trash can was smaller than the plate. Now. I'm philosophically annoyed because I have to bend the plate, a plate that is not meant to be bent. It doesn't really bend very well. And so as I bend it, things fly everywhere. My fork flies somewhere. It's just a mess. And every time I would go back there, before I would even begin to eat, I would become philosophically annoyed. Now, I don't think that was necessarily the work of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes the Holy Spirit works as an itchy heart. It means we, we are not often used to the internal warnings. So it is sometimes not a bullhorn but an itch and a philosophical annoyance that needs to be scratched. And when we begin to heed the warnings that are coming to us through the Holy Spirit, we begin to make internal and life changes, not just blaming others or saying that it's an outside entity that is creating the problems in our life. So again, starting from James 5, verse 7, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest. I don't know about you, but patience is tough for me. If you have it, we all need it. But the funny thing about patience is that we have a tendency not to wait for it. 
I wish I was more patient. But how do you become more patient? By waiting for more patience. I mean, would you consider yourself a patient person? If you are, what are you waiting for? And if you're not a patient person, why not? And what can you do to build more patience in your life? One is by simply recognizing the parousia or the presence of God. And by the way, when we use this term parousia, we talk about it was used for the arrival of a king or a dignitary. Christians use it for the word coming and, of course, second coming. But the question that I have to ask for you right now when it says that we are to wait like the farmer is this, do we wait passively or actively? In the series guide, I mentioned the fact that I have one farmer friend. I think I may actually have two farmer friends who are trained and work as farmers or have worked as farmers. And farmers are incredibly patient people. But I've never known a farmer to be passive in any way, shape, or form. Farmers get up early, they work all day, they work well into the night, and they come home, they sleep well, and they get up and they do it the next day, even when they're waiting for a harvest. You see, James 5, 7 says they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen, but they are not sitting there not doing anything. They know the value of their harvest and their patient receives that value as a gift, but they've been working the whole time. They have been working hard to make sure they are prepared when the harvest is ready. So when we are asked to wait and give and we are asked to be patient, God is not saying don't do anything. Don't be involved in the kingdom life right now. Don't be working on designing your faith. He's not saying that. What he's saying is there's a reward that's coming at the end. There is a harvest that's coming at the end, but you need to be prepared for that harvest. So of course, you are actively patient. And then he says this in James 5, 8. He says, you too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient and endure. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. But near, really? How long have we been waiting for his nearness to come? I think Revelation 3.20 says it in such an incredible way. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will share a meal together as friends. This famous text reminds us that Jesus is near in proximity as well as in time frame. And I don't know if any of you have a ring doorbell. We've got a ring doorbell. In fact, we've got rings all around our house. So if you ever plan on sneaking up to our house, you can't do it. Except there's this one time every single day, it's not at exactly the same time, but around the same time, that our ring doorbell just goes off. Our dog freaks out, goes running out to the door. We all get up, we go to the door because we're always excited when there's someone near the door. But once a day, there's no one there. I know it feels that for the last 2,000 years, there's been nobody at that doorbell, but we are promised that God is right outside. Whether in proximity or in time, he is near. I mean, it's a good question, right? How can Jesus be near for so long and yet not here? How long are we supposed to wait? And can it be that Jesus has been near for 2,000 years, but yet not here? The way we explain it is this. We call it imminency. Now, this is not that God is immanent with an A, which means that he is overall, but it's imminent. His return is imminent. His nearness is imminent. It is right there, right? The parousia, as we say, the coming, the presence of Jesus is imminent or right in the offering. offering. For every generation, this is, of course, true. 
And this has been argued in many different ways, and I won't delve into all of that. But we have believed that the second coming of Jesus was imminent and that it could happen at any moment. And that put us on a trajectory of sorts that seems to be hurting a bit as Jesus hasn't come back. But remember, we're waiting for Jesus to come back patiently and enduring, as James says. Do you ever remember waiting for your parents to come home? I grew up in the in the 1980s, right? And I was what was called a latchkey kid. I'm Generation X, you know, we've got all our issues and all our problems, but I was kind of a latchkey kid. And that's not a, a slam against my parents. Everybody was at that point. Everybody was working. Your kids would come home at the end of the day. And, you know, I had I had piano that I was supposed to, to work on, to practice. I had French horn that I was supposed to practice. You know, French horn, the coolest of all the brass instruments. Yeah, people really loved me for playing that. Um, but when I came home, what I would often do is I would turn on the TV and not get anything done, right? And my sister would come home and she would always do work. She'd do her homework, she'd do her practicing, and it used to bug me and it used to grumble. But what I would always do is I made sure that I could turn off the TV before my parents would get home, but I didn't realize those TVs got hot. So my parents would come home, I'd turn off the TV, I'd look like I was practicing, they'd walk in, my dad would just be talking to me and he'd put his hand on the TV and then he knew. I hadn't been doing anything waiting for his imminent return. When Jesus comes back, he's going to want to know the work that we have continued to do and how we've designed our lives of faith to be more effective in the world for the kingdom. I, I remember waiting for my parents to come home with this anticipation. But of course, sometimes my sister and I would grumble at each other. James 5, 9 says this about grumbling. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Remember Revelation 3:20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's two things that are going on in this text. First of all, imminence. He stands at the door and knock. He is near. And the second thing is a theme that James has spoken about almost every single chapter, which is the problem with sinful speech. It connects to the theme of much of the letter. Now, let's just go over this again. Why is sinful speech a problem? Why, again, is the way that we speak to one another an issue? Let me tell you one. The first reason is because it hurts our witness to Christ. This is first and foremost, if we are serious about sharing the gospel, we have to watch our tongues. I'm not gonna go over this again and again, but I want you to know how important it is because James wants you to know how incredibly important it is. And secondly, first, it hurts our witness to Christ. Secondly, it hurts our witness of everything, and that is true. It hurts our witness of every single thing. If we are not careful, we lose our voice in the world for everything that you want people to understand. You know that, right? If you have the problem of sinful speech, no matter what you're trying to convince someone of, no matter what you want them to understand, they will not hear you because they can't, because the sinful speech coming out of your mouth is going to overpower anything that else that you want them to know. What is your motivation when you talk to someone? Is it to spread the gospel? Even is it to convince someone of what you believe? But if we go about it in the wrong way, we lose our witness to Christ and we lose our witness completely. Now I know James has said a lot about that, but he keeps coming back to it because apparently it was a problem in the church. And maybe he keeps coming back to it because apparently it's still a problem for us today. We need to be careful. Moving on, James 5.10. 
For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now we're moving from farmers to prophets. And farmers are patient, we know that. But prophets, if you look at the Old Testament, they didn't have a tendency to be the most patient of people. They had a tendency to walk into the world and start yelling and screaming and getting people interested in what they were talking about and oftentimes really offending people by what they were saying. They were often derided for speaking unpopular things to not only the nation of Israel but other nations as well. But was he talking about just the Old Testament prophets or something else? You know, he could also be, James here could also be referencing Jewish martyrs during the Maccabean period. But the meaning is the same. Sometimes one has to suffer patiently waiting on God. We don't do it passively. We do it more like the prophets. Even as we wait on God, we are being used by God. But I want to be clear about something. No one likes waiting and no one likes suffering. And no one likes suffering with patient endurance. If you find yourself in despair, you are of course not alone. No one likes to suffer and no one likes to wait on God, but often faith is what happens in the waiting. Sometimes, often, it is the waiting that grows our faith. Like the example of the farmer, the crop has a time to grow. No, we don't like it. We don't enjoy it. It's not fun, but I don't remember where God ever promised this was going to be fun. This was going to be enjoyable. This was all going to be simple. He did say there would be joy in the midst of it. He did say there would be peace that passes an understanding of the fact that you're going through suffering and you are having to patiently endure through difficult things. But it doesn't have to be easy to be good. And it doesn't have to simply be easy to be God. Faith is what happens in the waiting. Continuing on, James 5.11, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. So what happens is James is finally leaning into one of the greatest sufferers and someone with also some great patience. Not that he didn't have issues. But Job, in the midst of it all, chose to believe that God is still good, so compassionate that he was willing to take it all in stride and give himself over to the goodness of God. He did this even at the advice of his friends going a different direction. And again, let's not believe that Job didn't have an issue and finally reached out to God saying, what in the world is happening? And God ultimately put him in his place. But ultimately, God was justified in the midst of that. James speaks to this because it's a teaching tool that they would have heard over and over again and they would have known what he was speaking of. So it seems like what has happened in the book of James is that we've almost gone full circle. Does this, what he's saying right now, connect with the beginning of the book? Yes. Chapter 1, verse 12, he mentions the blessing of, be, of enduring and of patience. And these seem to be the key themes in the book of James as well as ideas of humility and obedience, not being arrogant all, uh, arrogant, all those things. But it does connect because you know what happens? In good writing, in good preaching, and good communication, things come full circle. Have you ever been watching a movie and somebody says a phrase 
And then you know you're going to probably hear that phrase at the end, and it's such a great feeling of that phrase, that motif coming back at the end, and the protagonist saying that thing again. In sermons, great preachers, that happens as well. They start off with a phrase, they come back. You don't often hear it with me. I'm not that great a preacher. But man, those great monsters of preaching who, who start with a theme and then come back to a theme. Or if you like a piece of music, we call it the cantus firmus, right? That one theme that goes throughout, and then they go away from the theme, but they always come back to the theme. Those of you who have recently found Hamilton, a little late to the game, but those of you who recently found the musical Hamilton understand what I'm talking about when we talk about coming back to the theme because the music weaves its way around. And this is what James has done in the book. He's brought you back to the themes. Patience, endurance, suffering, watching our tongues, humility. If we wrote down those themes in the book of James, you would know what they are because you would encounter them again and again and again. So let me ask you a simple question. What is the theme of your life? Could it be that simple? If you asked 10 people what they thought you were about, would it be clear? Would they know what it is that you believe and what it is that you want for the world? Would they see Jesus in you? Would they know what you believe about God, about love, about grace, about compassion? Or would they be confused because you never came back to the theme? I know this sounds tough, right? I know this sounds harsh, but what is the theme of your life that people go, yeah, him, I knew him, her, this is what she's about, and this is why I want her or him in my life. James comes back to a recurring theme because he wants you to understand what he's about. What is the theme of your life? And this would be just such a great place to stop, but there's one more little text that we have to go into. James adds one more thing, one more thought to this little pericope, and it almost seems like it's out of place. James 5.12 does this. He says, But most of all, brothers and sisters, never take an oath, by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. And while this can be confusing that all this comes at the end, I would like to posit that perhaps this is James trying to remind people that it's simple. Be honest, be open, be clear, and people will know what it is that you're about and what God is about through you. So I asked the question before, what is the theme of your life? But I'll ask the question simply this way, what are you about? Through these times that we're living in right now and through what you know, is, is obviously gonna be a very contentious election cycle, there's politicians everywhere and everything seems to be politics. What people are gonna do is they're gonna say, this is my platform, this is what I'm about. Before you get into that and before you get into a discussion with somebody else about what you think this person or that person about, I want you to ask the question of yourself, what are you about? What is your life and what is your message? And does anyone know, does anyone can anyone even hear it in all the noise that's in the world right now? What are you about? What is it that you are messaging to the world? If we claim Christ, then before anything else we believe, before anything else that we can be about, we have to be about him and what Jesus is about. And I urge you to continue to find out through study, through prayer, through surrender, through community, who Jesus is 
and what he wants for you, for his kingdom and for the world. Again, there's going to be a great many people planting flags and saying, this is what I'm about and this is not what the other person is about. Before you engage in those conversations, I implore you in your life, before you engage with a spirit of criticism or spirit of harshness, I implore you to ask yourself what you're about and then move on accordingly. Because if you claim Christ, if you say that you're a Christian, if you say you are someone who believes in the words of Jesus, then you've got to take a moment and, and make sure you understand what it is that you're saying, how it is that you're saying it, and how we can move together in unity towards a greater expression of who Jesus is. Now, it's hard to even talk about unity. If we can be relevant and recognize that things feel pretty divided. I think what we've got to do now is we've got to take a pause. We've got to take a moment. We've got to make sure we understand what we're about. What are those values and authorities in our lives that we really lean into? What are those things that we really want our children to know about us and we really want the world to know about us as a community, as a family, as a follower of Christ? James, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Be pretty simple about it. Watch your tongue. Don't be arrogant. Make sure you're willing to patiently endure any suffering that comes. These are not easy words. They never were. But you know what they are? They are what God inspired James to write for us. Now, it's easy to say, well, that was a problem they were having in the first century church, and maybe that's true. Maybe none of this is relevant to you, but maybe it is. And if it is, take a moment. That's what we're blessed with, with the Sabbath, right? Moment, time to think about what it is that you are about, what it is that I'm about, but most of all, what it is that Jesus is about. Why don't we pray today? God of grace, when I read about you, Lord, when I ponder you, when I think about your life, I know what you are about. And discovering that has changed me. And Lord, it is my prayer that the continued work of discovery in every one of our hearts would change us as well, would bring us to a greater sense of unity, would quell the criticism in our hearts and know the judgment is yours. And also we understand that you're standing at the door, you're knocking, you're right here, you're near, your coming is imminent and you are imminent. Jesus, may you work deeply within our hearts. May you send the Holy Spirit to transform us, to make us into new beings without spot or blemish so that we might recognize the Jesus in one another. We're not quite done with this book, Lord. You have more to open up for us, but Lord, please continue to grant us wisdom in the midst of all of this. In your name I pray, Lord. In the name of Jesus, Amen.